Folks, good evening. And can I give my welcome to you as you join with us here uh, as we come together to learn together uh, things from God's Word. Can I, on your behalf and indeed on my own behalf, thank uh, the Red Team? Perhaps you didn't know that they were the Red Team. Well, this is the Red Team. This is the first time that they've come together uh, as part of our new structured uh, praise and worship teams. So thank you guys for the work that you've put in throughout the week and indeed this morning and this evening. It's much appreciated, so thank you for that. We come to our second evening thinking about prayer. Uh, we started last week with Christoph getting us thinking about simple prayer, how prayer is to be simple. We come with short phrases, with whatever's on our hearts, in our own words and in our own language. We can pray aspects of Scripture that would help us to, to come near to God. Well, we move on tonight to, to think about how we can bring prayer into our everyday lives, something that is ordinary. Christoph shared his own personal uh, thinking on prayer last week, so it's not confession time, but I'm going to share a little bit of mine. I found it very helpful last week uh, to hear what Christoph was saying because it resounded with me. Prayer is something that we should find easy in many respects. It should be something that we really enjoy. But for me, it's not always like that. I know that I should pray. And a lot of the time, I would find my prayers being reactive prayers. Praying for something that has just happened or something that's about to come up that's going to take a lot of, a lot of help with. I can go through a whole day recognizing at the end of it that I haven't had taken time to pray, even though my intention was that I would. And I can come up with all the excuses of the day. I was too busy. This happened, that happened. And I just didn't get time. In saying this, I know the flaws of everything I've said. I know that that's not what I should be. But last week, I took great encouragement pray simply. So your first homework check, how did you get on during your week? How were your simple prayers? Christoph challenged us to take five minutes of simple prayer, just as we had done in our service together last Sunday evening. How did your five minutes go each day? For the first time in, in a number of weeks, for me, it was refreshing. Because it's so easy to slip into the language that we think we have to pray or indeed, as I had brought myself to think, the format of the prayer. But to actually just come and pray simply for the things that were concerning me and concerning my loved ones and my friends, it was refreshing to try simple prayer. Keep going with it. I have found it a great blessing this week, and I thank Christoph for his time and effort last week in in helping me and I'm sure others in coming to that. So let's go with what we're thinking this evening. And as we looked at last week, we're going to split this into two different sections. If you like, the first 10 minutes or so that we're going to have now gives us a little bit of a, a background of a difficulty with prayer or a problem with prayer, and then we'll sing and then we'll come back and we'll think of, well, what is the practical application of how we can move forward from here? On my travels to Africa and Asia, I 
have been astonished by how people have prayed. I've admired their devotion and their enthusiasm in prayer. I've been amazed at how regular they are in prayer and how eloquent their prayers are spoken. But after listening for a while, something struck me. I was very impressed with with everything that was going on, but when I heard the prayers again and again, it didn't impress me at all. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that prayer should impress me, but what didn't impress me was the attitude of prayer. They were the same prayers. Their focus was always about a wish list of what people wanted. Lord, do this. Lord, do that. Or it was perhaps something to do with luck. They'd placed a bet or they had some financial thing coming up and they were praying for luck that it would all work out. Their prayers were very self-centered, as if they were using God as this big bank in the sky who would do everything that they wished by the ritual, by the enthusiasm, by the devotion that they would come to repeat these requests time and time and time again. And in many of the prayers, although there were in some, but in many of the prayers, there was no recognition of God as creator, God as the one, the provider of salvation. We shouldn't sit back too comfortably in our pews thinking, well, that's over there. In doing a bit of reading in preparation for this evening, I had my eyes opened to what a guy, James Houston, who Christoph introduced us to last week, shares with us about how we in society today and in the Christian church today can fall into the same traps, the same pitfalls as the people that I've witnessed overseas. And so for the next couple of minutes, we're going to look at what these three pitfalls are, and then we'll think about how we can go forward from there. So the first is that we see prayer as something that we do. It's a task. It's something else that fits into our schedules. It must be in there. So we come to it with that mindset, just like we come to our work. It has to be done, whether we want to do it or not, whether we enjoy doing it or not. It's something we do. To see prayer as something that we do, as just something else on our plate of busyness, it relegates it. It relegates it to the realms of the how-tos. You know those manuals, how to do this, how to do that. Because when we come to do prayer, it becomes a a technique of our day. It becomes something we slot in and fit in that we really don't engage with. We come off with rote prayer with no connection with God at all. And in many respects, it can become the asking, asking, asking prayer. When we look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, we learn so much Because the Pharisee comes along, stands publicly, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. This guy's doing prayer. He's doing it for everyone to see, and he's pretty good at it. But it's something he is doing. It's there to be impressive. It's there just to show how close to God he is. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forget what he says and think of his body language. He stands at a distance, not desiring to draw attention to himself. He doesn't even look to heaven because he knows his own heart before God. He beats his breast and cries out for mercy as he recognizes he desperately needs God's mercy. James Houston comments that a faith that depends on what we do has forgotten its roots. For the Pharisee, it was all about the show. It was all about what he did. For the tax collector, it was about a posture and an attitude. When we treat prayer as another thing that we do, we lose so much in deepening our relationship with God. Prayer is about our attitude. It is about our position. It's about coming before God and recognizing who we are in his presence. Prayer should never be something that we do. Prayer is about deepening our relationship with God as we recognize ourselves in his presence. The second thing that Houston suggests to us is that we must be aware of treating prayer as a custom. In the past, prayer would have been part of the decor of church life. One of the many things that I did as a career, I used to dress up as a Georgian character in Armagh. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to visit Armagh, but I don't know if you can imagine me in a frilly wig with a three-pointed hat and doing all the bowing and everything like that. But I worked in the palace in Armagh, the Archbishop's Palace as it was in the 1700s. And of course, we would bring in an Archbishop and he would sit in his seat and everyone had rank. And a big part, and I discovered this very quickly, a big part of it was prayer. Of course, they couldn't pray in front of school children. That's just something they couldn't do. But they would explain prayer. And they explained that right at the back you had the groundsmen and they were standing at the door so the draft wouldn't come in. But everyone had their place. And when it came to prayer, all those with the wigs and the hats were in the position of being able to look upon those who were standing. They were slightly raised above everyone else. Prayer was something of eloquent words. It was something that would put people down. And if we were to travel back to... Uh, a house in those times, we would discover that someone of the aristocracy would have done the same, not just in an archbishop's palace. But they would have kept people down through the custom of prayer. It kept people in their place. Either saying, you cannot pray because your words are so foul that you don't have the classical upbringing that it takes to come before God, or just to be praying over them as if they were insignificant people people not even worthy of God's attention. Prayer was part of the culture. It was part of the custom. And as soon as customs vanish, such prayer vanishes with them. For many of us, we would recognize a custom in our own lives with prayer. I would imagine that if we have been brought up in a home that recognized prayer as something that was important, we've been taught how to pray. From a very young age, we were taught how to pray, and it became part 
of our custom. It became a habit. And a good habit at that. I'm not disputing the, the habit of praying. And habits are important for building character. But when they become unthinking and automatic, they can have a deadening effect upon our whole lives. This is especially the case when it comes to the habits of prayer, where we treat prayer as a custom, something that we must uh, take part in and do whenever people are around us to show who we are. Habits are good, but when we fall into the same routines, they can have a deadening effect upon our whole lives. Prayer cannot be something we do, nor can it be a custom that we use for our own advantage or for the putting down of others. Thirdly, there's a danger in how we pray, and that is seeing prayer as magic. We probably don't think of it in these terms. Indeed, it can appear suddenly in the prayers of people who would be horrified to think that they were involved in magic. But it is alarmingly easy for prayer to become a kind of magical device which we use to get our own way. As a student, I would never open an exam paper until I had prayed. I knew the routine. The papers would be put down in front of you. The examiner would say, you now have three hours. You may open your paper. Good luck. I would never open my paper. I knew my little routine. It was to pray and then open my paper and then start. After all, that was the secret key to passing your exams, wasn't it? Didn't matter about your revision. But to me it was the key, and I look back now and see that it was a particular habit and trait, a little, as it were, magic trick that I would go through to try and persuade God to answer my prayer to help me pass this exam. And I was earnestly trying to do the right thing, or so I thought, because I give God his place. So I wouldn't even look at the questions until I'd recognize that it didn't matter what was coming up, my trust would be in him. And then I would open up and away I go. I was using it as a little trick to get God on my side so that I would pass the exams that I needed to pass. I was trying to win favor with God. I can say that it didn't work at times. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say that. But I recognize how stupid I was. Pray for exams, yes. But don't try to trick God into getting my way with what I wanted. And we do have our own tricks in prayer that make us think we are getting God's attention and then our prayers are sure to be answered. And the tricks are different and wide-ranging. Let me give you an example. If we're at a prayer meeting that is particularly emotionally charged and charismatic, there is thinking in the group that if people are fervent in prayer and speaking in tongues, then it has been a wonderful prayer meeting and prayer will be answered but it's for the simple reason because people have been more spiritual in what they are doing. Tongues have their place. Fervent prayer and emotionally charged prayer has its place. But when it seems that we're more spiritual, therefore God will answer our prayers. We're trying to do a little magic trick that will make God do what we want. On the other hand, there are those who do pilgrimages and light candles and place notes with photos of loved ones, often going through what they go through to invoke God to answer their needs. 
again doing what they can to please God, the magic trick, so that he will hear and answer their needs. Magic also creeps in, or this idea of of this kind of prayer creeps in when people use prayer as a way of avoiding their responsibilities. How many times have you been asked for help and your response has been, oh, I'll pray for that, rather than actually doing something? Forget about whether we're genuine and following up with prayer. But in saying that little phrase, I will pray for you or I will pray for that, are we negating our responsibility to help others immediately? Are we negating our responsibility so that it will be an easier way for us? So that it won't be as difficult, we won't have to get involved, rather than recognizing the need that God has put in front of us, that as his people we can act upon here and now. In each of these three traps, prayer is something we do. Prayer becomes a custom and a habit that we just go through. Or using prayer as a little magic trick to get God's attention. We miss the main thing. Prayer is about growing in relationship with God. If we find ourselves in any one of these three types of of praying modes, we need to get a completely new perspective. We need to be like the tax collector and realize that we need God's mercy to help us come to him. We need to recognize that the focus of prayer is not prayer, but it is God himself. We need to seek the mind and the spirit of Jesus so that our prayers can reflect how he prayed, the example prayers that he has given us. And when we do, He doesn't become that occasional guest in our lives, but rather the one to whom we are surrendered and the one who rules over all. But prayer is also done in community. We need help in prayer. We need encouragement with prayer. Help to keep focused on God. It comes as we are together. It comes also as we read the Bible. That is why we know that it goes hand in hand. Read your Bible and prayer. Prayer is a response to how we discover God in his word. As we are exposed to the Bible, we become biblical people and therefore our prayers develop in response to what God says in his word. I would guess, if we're all honest, we will recognize that our prayer lives need some work. They need a little bit of attention paid to them. We need to watch out for the pitfalls that we can so easily slip into. That can draw us into false understanding of prayer. We need to be aware of how we can enrich our prayer lives and thus enrich our lives in Christ as we come to prayer through Jesus, recognizing God as the one whom we are discovering. That's given us a little bit of a background with the difficulties that we may have in prayer. Let's take a moment and let's sing. We're going to sing hymn 184. In the hymn books, the the words will be on the screen. No one but you, Lord. And as we sing, the stewards will wait on you for the offering. If you've come prepared to give tonight, they'll receive that now. To allow you to stretch your legs if need be, um, let's stand as this is uh, happening. Uh, We don't normally do that, but let's uh, give you a chance. And uh, if you can manage that, that will be great. 
so let's stand, let's sing, and also let's give uh, as part of our worship to God. So thinking what we've just looked at, what's the way forward for us? How can we move forward in this? When we think about what practical steps we can do to enrich our prayer life, what, what can we do? Well, Richard Foster suggests a way that we can pray. And he calls this praying the ordinary. And he says we can pray the ordinary in three, in three ways. First, by turning ordinary experiences of life into prayer. Second, by seeing God in the ordinary experiences of life. And third, by praying throughout the ordinary experiences of life. So he says... Firstly, by turning ordinary experiences of life into prayer. Second, by seeing God in the ordinary experiences of life. And then third, praying through the ordinary experiences of life. Let me take a moment to tell you about my dad. I never considered my father to be a spiritual man. He was a, a church elder and he was my Sunday school teacher. But that was about it. Our home life didn't lend itself to Dad putting us to bed and reading us Bible stories and praying with us. 
So my only exposure to my father praying was either in the opening of Sunday school each Sunday or as I grew and attended the church prayer meeting weekly hearing him pray there. One character flaw of my father. My father was easily angered. I can still remember nights when he would come home from Kirk Session meetings and um, it wouldn't be a pretty sight. He didn't suffer fools easily. If there was a decision that had been made that he saw was stupid or was wasteful, he wasn't too happy. But that was my father. It wasn't until that he was diagnosed with cancer in 2007. I started to worry, well, how's he going to play all this out? My father's not a patient man. I never recognized him as a prayerful man or a man expressing his faith uh, very much beyond what was required in church. And so I wondered, how is this going to play out? I discovered some things. In the midst of his illness, both the hope of recovery and the despair of failed treatment, my father displayed a spiritual life that was lived in the ordinary. All of a sudden, his prayer life grew at a phenomenal rate. His conversations about Christ were engaging and thrilling, no matter who he was talking to. And his worship in church was something of beauty that only his family could really appreciate. I don't think my father was trying to win favor with God. In fact, I'm certain that he wasn't. My father fully accepted what was going on, what was happening, whether it be some successes in treatment and eventually the failure of treatment. He wasn't trying to win favor with God, but what he realized, even up to the moment of his death, was that God was in the ordinary the ordinary things of life, and as such, he was to be acknowledged in those places. This has been a sharp lesson for me. I was learning this at the age of 28, 29, and now as I reflect on it a few years after his death, it has been huge lessons for me that discovering that it is in the ordinary where we meet God. And when we think about it, when we pull together our biblical knowledge and our biblical thinking, it's always been in the ordinary. The sacred and the secular have combined for God to be revealed. What happened? A divine word was said and created order came to be. We now know it as the secular, the ordinary, how the world runs and how life runs. An order was sent, and the Son of God was born in a manger in a stable. The sacred coming to the secular. The divine coming into the ordinary. God has always been working in the ordinary things of life. That's where he has done his work. We cannot dismiss God from what is the ordinary of life. So how do we pray in the ordinary? Well, firstly, we think of our nine to fives. What do you do nine to five? What do you do during your day? What work do you do? And can I just point out that work is not defined by how you are remunerated with a financial gift at the end of a month. So how do you do your nine to five? 
Maybe it is paid employment. Maybe it is the housework. Maybe it is the work in the community that you do for your neighbors and your friends. Well, it is in these tasks that we find God. Because it's in these tasks that we offer them to God. And it is a response to Scripture. He tells us that we are to be his people in the world. And so, in everything we do, we do it for the glory of his name. In the movie Chariots of Fire, Olympic runner Eric Little tells his sister, Jenny, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric Little's nine to five, certainly in the run-up to the Olympics, was running. That's what he did. That was his ordinary. And in his ordinary, he felt the pleasure of God. In what we do and in what we, we know, do we feel the pleasure of God? As we offer our daily work in home and in work, do we offer it to God so that we may know his pleasure as we offer it to, to him sacrificially and also praying in it and through it that which is the ordinary? So we pray the ordinary in our nine to fives. We also pray the ordinary by what we experience in life. So what do we do in the whole spectrum of life? We transition jobs, we purchase a house or a car, we get married, we work out our savings, investments and pensions. We celebrate with family, we mourn with family. We party with our neighbors and we help in our community. These are the ordinary things in life. These are the things that are natural to us. And so these are the things that should be natural as we pray the ordinary. And it isn't just in these events that we must pray. Sorry, it is in these events that we must pray because it's in these ordinary events that we desire to be a witness. And as we seek God's leading for what is ahead. In our communities. In our behavior with those around us, with our neighbors and our friends. We pray for them and we pray for what we're going into so that we can be the witnesses of Christ. Thirdly, in life we seem to do a lot of waiting. We wait at the doctors for our appointment. We wait in the queue at the checkout. We wait for exam results. We wait for a job interview. We wait to get married. We wait for the birth of a child. We wait to retire and we wait to die. It is in the waiting, the ordinary of life that we must pray. We don't like waiting because generally we don't know or we don't like waiting on what is to come and it takes so long for the outcome to happen. But it's in these moments that we engage with God a book that we've been reading as a staff team uh, last year was by Ajit Fernando. And in one of his examples, he talks about a, a troubling time in Sri Lanka when one of his workers for Youth for Christ was taken and held in prison. And, and this was a time that you shouldn't go out. But he went and he sat in the prison waiting to find out what was going to happen. And he says that he wrote more sermons in those moments in the waiting 
He prayed for more people who were around him in the circumstances that he knew within his own ministry. He prayed for them in the waiting. It was in the waiting, in the ordinary, where he prayed and he met with God. How many times is your bus late? How many times is your train late? How many times do you just wish the checkout would go quicker and quicker? In the waiting times, can we pray in the ordinary for those around us and for the situations that are close to our hearts? The fourth and final place where we can pray the ordinary is in our homes. Where would you say the center of your home is? I would imagine for many it's, it's the table, the kitchen table. It's there that victories are recounted and told. It's the place where we shed the tears. It's in the home where we love and we discipline. In the home where we care and where we argue. It's in the home where we are seen for who we really are. Therefore, there is no better place to meet God in prayer. In the ordinary, run-of-the-mill family stuff, we pray. There's nothing more ordinary than our homes. And it is there we pray in the ordinary for our children, our grandchildren, our siblings, our spouses, those we enjoy spending company with, those we find it difficult. We pray for our friends and neighbors. We pray for the situations in our community. And we pray for situations around the world. We pray in the ordinary. We pray in our nine to fives. We pray by what we experience in life as we go through life and as we are at different stages in life. We pray in the ordinary waiting of life. And we pray in the ordinary, run-of-the-mill family life in our homes. Praying in the ordinary of life is something that we can do every moment. Nehemiah gives us the perfect example of this. As he has gone back to Jerusalem, and as he surveys the damage of the walls, as he hears rumors of attacks, what does Nehemiah do time and time and time again? He takes a moment, just a moment, and he prays. There are no eloquent words. It is just his heart's desire in the ordinary of the moment with whatever he is facing. He was a simple cupbearer to the king, a butler. And he would pray in the ordinary as he witnessed it in Jerusalem. So your homework... Keep going with your praying simply for five minutes. See if it develops and start praying in the ordinary of life as we are exposed to it. For it's in the ordinary of life where we experience God and where we have a deeper knowledge of God as we respond to what his word teaches us. As we come to him desiring, hungry to be in that deeper relationship and in prayer with him. Let's pray.